Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. This is your host, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Today, Jennifer Milner and I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jill Schofield, founder and director of the Center for Multisystem Disease. After completing her internal medicine residency at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Schofield underwent subspecialty training in multisystemic autoimmune disease and blood clotting disorders. In 2014, she described the association of autonomic disorders in the antiphospholipid syndrome with Dr. Graham Hughes in London, who himself had first described the antiphospholipid syndrome. Dr. Schofield was the recipient of the Dysautonomia Support Network Patient's Choice Game Changer Award in 2019 for her work in the use of immunoglobulin therapy in autoimmune dysautonomia. She also authored the chapter Autoimmunity and Hypermobility for the book Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, which is a must-read for anyone interested in these topics. Schofield, hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. And Jennifer, hello, and it's so great to chat with you again today. Good to be back, as always. Wonderful, wonderful. So, so Dr. Schofield, can you start out by giving us a general overview of autoimmune disorders? Sure. Um, autoimmune disorders um, are disorders really where there's a mistake in the immune system. The um, job of the immune system is to fight off foreign invaders and that might seem like a simple job, but actually in order to do it right, the immune system has to distinguish between self and non-self or our body and foreign invaders. And uh, sometimes a mistake occurs where the immune system thinks a molecule or protein in the body is foreign. And that's when autoimmunity develops because the immune system is then attacking something in the body and that leads to tissue damage and that manifests as symptoms depending on what tissue or tissues are damaged. So the most common example is autoimmune thyroid disease where the immune system is recognizing a molecule or protein in the thyroid as foreign um, and then there's damage to the thyroid. There's not always actually damage to the thyroid. There can just be the antibodies, but the thyroid works normally, but it's still a marker that there's a problem with the immune system that can, um, once there's one problem with the immune system, more problems can arise. So it can serve as sort of a marker or red flag that we, the person's at risk of other autoimmune issues. And also they're at risk where their thyroid function might deteriorate over time. Um, Thyroid, autoimmune thyroid disease is an example of what we call a disease-specific um, autoimmune disease where just the thyroid might be affected. But diseases like autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome, um, those are systemic autoimmune diseases where there can be problems with multiple organ systems and depending on, on the individual case. Um, so really they're a problem of... Um, a dysregulation in the immune system and um, only about 8% of the population will ever get an autoimmune disease and, and so you have to inherit a genetic predisposition to ever get it, an autoimmune disease um, and then there has to be a trigger and probably there has to be more than one trigger um, for, the, for an autoimmune disease to actually, manif actually manifest clinically and so it's very complex. We have a lot to learn about it. 
Um, but that's kind of an overview. Sure, sure. And overall, do you think the prevalence is is increasing? And if so, why might that be? Or is this something that, you know, you mentioned 8%. Is that something that's been pretty stable over time? No, the, the, the incidence is increasing for, I think, every autoimmune and immune-mediated disease, um, except perhaps rheumatoid arthritis, because smoking is a big trigger for rheumatoid arthritis, and the incidence of smoking has gone down, and that may be why that incidence of rheumatoid arthritis hasn't risen like most or all of the rest of the autoimmune diseases and probably, you know, mast cell activation syndrome, which is not an autoimmune disease because, uh, but it's an immune mediated disease where the mast cells are also part of the immune system, but in mast cell activation syndrome, they're getting activated and they're not attacking something in the body. They're just releasing chemicals that are then damaging the body, but there's not they're not specifically attacking a molecule in the body. And mast cell activation syndromes, syndrome seems to be increasing as well. I don't know that that's been formally published in the medical literature, but for those of us in clinical, clinical practice, certainly seems to be exploding. Sure, sure. So why? So why? There's a tremendous change in our environment. Um, there hasn't been time for there to be genetic changes, you know, because we're seeing this increase in the last one and even, you know, two generations. Um, so it has to be a problem with our environment. And there's, as we all know, tremendous change in our environment in the last two decades with, you know, some of the things that have been suggested um, are, you know, all the chemicals in the environment, um, the ability to, prior to COVID, the ability to dart here and there, you know, from this country to that country, which leads to a shift in the microbiome and the microbiome we're learning has tremendous influence on the immune system. Then there's the hygiene hypothesis, which is probably going to be even worse now with COVID where we keep everything too clean. Kids aren't playing in the dirt anymore. And the immune system is kind of, doesn't have anything to do. Um, I, I think I'm not at all an anti-vaxxer, but the number, the sheer number of vaccines that are given today compared to one or even two, two or even one generation ago is dramatically increased. And every vaccine has an adjuvant and an adjuvant is a nonspecific stimulator of the immune system to make us respond to the vaccine, to the molecule of say a virus. And so if you, if you're born within everything exists on a bell shaped curve. And if your immune system is sort of on the Oh, kind of higher end of active and you're getting, you know, 25 vaccines in your first year, that could tip you over to where you might develop an autoimmune disease where you might not have many years ago. But obviously, as we're learning with COVID, I mean, vaccines are extremely important. Um, so it's, you know, 100 years ago, people died of infectious diseases. And now, uh, and the people with an overactive immune system were in a better position. And now, you know, the tables have sort of turned. Um, so those are some, those are some of the reasons, you know, that have been proposed for why we may be seeing this explosion in autoimmune diseases. And it's probably more complicated even than that. The immune system is extremely complicated and it's interaction, our interaction, the interaction of our immune system with the environment is very complicated. Sure. And what about the difference between males and females? It, I'm thinking of in terms of like pregnancy and that kind of thing. You were talking about like a, a triggering event. Um, yeah. Is, are there differences between males and females? There's a much greater incidence of autoimmune disease in females. 
that's not fully understood. It's not as simple as hormones. Certainly we think hormones play a role because it's the period of time uh, of the menstruation in women, you know, from say age 15 to 50, that's when we see the most autoimmune disease. Um, and some of the autoimmune diseases, the ratio is very high, you know, like I think Sjogren's it's nine to one, lupus it's eight to one, somewhere in that ballpark, you know, it's dramatically higher in women and um, people are studying that, you know, differences in B cells in women versus men, et cetera. It's not as simple as hormonal, but that that's felt to play a role. Just sure. another of the many areas we have a lot to learn about. It doesn't seem like there's such a um, difference in um, female to male ratio in MCAS though. Um, that's just my anecdotal experience. I don't know what others experience with them, but it doesn't seem as strongly female predominant in MCAS as autoimmune disease. That, that's interesting because we know that for um, EDS, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, and for those that probably a lot of people know what MCAS is, but mast cell activation syndrome, we will re refer to that as MCAS um, a lot through this conversation. So, so we know that, that um, and that was the next thing I was going to ask you about, was if you could describe the relationship between autoimmune disorders, dysautonomia, EDS, and MCAS. And we know that dysautonomia and EDS are more prevalent in females, right? Yes. And, Emails, so. Yeah, absolutely. I guess all of those things are seem to be much more prevalent symptomatically in women than males, except for, I think, except for MCAS. But, uh, you know, there seems to be this tremendous, tremendous link between all of those conditions um, that those of us sort of in the trenches are noticing. I, I know that some of the the group, the MCAS group that has a much more narrow definition of MCAS has tried to refute that link. But if you see patients, you know there's a very strong link. I think of it as three gears, taking EDS out of it. Um, there's, the auto, there's the autonomic nervous system, which is the master regulator. And we're learning that it regulates, along with everything else, it regulates also the immune system. And then there's the two arms of the immune system, the primitive arm, first responders, where the mast cells reside. And then there's the sophisticated arm or the acquired arm of the immune system where autoimmunity resides. And I think of all these things as interacting like three gears. And when one gets off and I start to see the other ones get off and we know it has been demonstrated um, in the medical literature, the link between autonomic nervous system disorders and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, so that link has been established. Um, I haven't, seen you know official links i mean there's there's early as i as we wrote as i wrote in the dis short disjointed chapter on the link between eds and autoimmunity that's just an emerging link with preliminary kind of small studies suggesting a link and i think that will be shown to be true but um and then the link between eds and mcas seems dramatically obvious when you see patients but I don't think that that's been proven yet in the literature either, but I don't think I have an EDS patient who I wouldn't say has some significant degree of mast cell activation clinically, whether it's proven objectively or not, um, because that's a whole another conversation, as you know. Um, the link seems incredibly strong. Right. And you know, there are hypotheses about, um, you know, that there may be, the reason we may not 
have, there may not be an identifiable mutation in collagen or collagen regulatory genes in hypermobile EDS patients, that at least a subset of those patients, it may, it may be because the original, original mutation or mutations are in mast cells, and some of the mast cell mediators are damaging to tissue. Tissues, like if you go to the store and you buy meat tenderizer, it has one ingredient, which is tryptase. Sure. That, that, but on the other hand, I have seen also MCAS in patients with Marfan syndrome. So it's not going to be that simple. It's very complicated. We have, it's going to be incredibly interesting over the next 10 years to see what shakes out and, you know, the people doing really good research, which hasn't really occurred yet a lot in MCAS because it's so new. Sure, sure. And um, could you go into a little bit of uh, detail about what autonomic disorders are and um, I know you work a lot with people that have um, dysautonomia, especially um, autoimmune forms, autoimmune activated dysautonomia. Could you talk a little bit about what autonomic disorders are um, just, you know, uh, in general and why people who are bendy, why they should know about them? Well, yeah, so it has been shown, I believe the numbers around 80% in the studies, the formal studies that have been published, 80% or so of people with EDS will have symptoms and or abnormal autonomic testing, abnormal autonomic symptoms and or abnormal autonomic testing. So it's extremely strong link. So that's why people with EDS should know about it. So, and it runs like anything, it runs from very mild to very, very severe and disabling. But um, dysautonomia is the, is the umbrella term that we use for any dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, as the name says, dysautonomia. So it's an umbrella term that encompasses a number of different disorders of the autonomic nervous system. POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome has quickly become the most famous. Um, and then there's sort of on the spectrum with POTS is orthostatic intolerance and there's neurocardiogenic syncope and there's inappropriate sinus tachycardia. Um, and these are all have very specific criteria for how we diagnose them. But in general, they're kind of treated all the same and they have kind of similar symptoms, multi-system symptoms. But the most specific symptom, I would say, of dysautonomia is feeling lightheaded when you stand up. Um, that's kind of the most specific symptom, but we also see severe fatigue, kind of palpitations or tachycardia, which means a fast heart rate, um, exercise intolerance or any exertional intolerance, including cognitive intolerance of cognitive exertion, thinking a lot, thinking about complicated things. Um, those are, um, oh, and of course syncope, you know, lightheaded when you stand near light, near passing out or passing out. Um, that's kind of the range of symptoms that we see most often in people with dysautonomia, although many of those symptoms overlap with MCAS, for example, so it becomes complicated. Um, that's why I say the most specific symptom is feeling lightheaded when you stand on a regular basis. Um, not everybody with autonomic disorders pass, passes out. Um, um, so that's, that's what dysautonomia is. And they, most, of, most of the time, you know, in the formal 2015 Heart Rhythm Society guidelines for how we diagnose these conditions, um, they can be diagnosed with tilt table testing or in-office stand testing where we look at what happens 
to the blood pressure and heart rate in response to standing, which is, you know, a major stress to the autonomic nervous system because if when we stand, there's this immediate displacement downward of blood due to gravity. And if we didn't make some sort of compensation, we would all pass out. And the autonomic nervous system is what makes that compensation. So that, that um, looking at the blood pressure and heart rate has provided a window into looking at the autonomic nervous system, which you can imagine is extremely hard to study. How do you study the regulation of temperature, the regulation of digestion, the regulation of response to stress? Those things are much harder to study than like a tumor you can see on an x-ray. So that's why I think we're so behind in learning about autonomic disorders. Sure. And how do you differentiate autoimmune from non-autoimmune dysautonomia? Well, diagnosing autoimmune disease is very complicated there are criteria, everything has to have criteria or boxes that are specifically defined. And in autoimmune disease, it's very complicated. Like MCAS is similar. We have similar difficulties in coming to agreements on how to make the, um, these boxes and how to define. But in general, it's a com- in general, well, I guess the biggest thing would be autoantibodies, okay? But it's more than that. You can't just have POTS and have autoantibodies. I mean, it's complicated because you have to take in the symptom, you have to take into account the symptoms, what else might be going on, Um, you know, is there MCAS, is there, it's complicated, (laughs) very complicated. But I I would say, you know, there are are autoantibodies that have been associated in the medical literature with dysautonomia, usually small fiber or autonomic neuropathy. Um, And so um, the kind of um, red flags are when I, I mean, anybody who has significant dysautonomia, you have to consider the possibility that it could be autoimmune. But the red flags for me are there's a family history of autoimmune disease, because as we said, if there's a genetic predisposition, we know you may fall into that 8% of people. You do fall you're at risk of being in that 8% of people. So family history is really important um, for me in looking at somebody. Although, because there's an increase in autoimmune disease in general, not everybody does have a family history Mm -hmm. uh, of autoimmune disease. So family history of autoimmune disease, sort of a subacute or acute and progressive onset um, that always makes me think of an autoimmune cause um, and then there, you know, there are things like Raynaud's, um, there, there are certain clinical features that make you think about an autoimmune disease. Um, and if there's a trigger and there's not always a trigger. So you mentioned pregnancy, pregnancy can be a trigger, surgery, car accident, concussion, vaccine, infection. Those are all kind of triggers. So if someone has a, a they were fine and then one of these triggers occurred and then they were getting very sick quite quickly and in a progressive fashion, that's kind of the person that I'm really worried may have an autoimmune cause. So there's a number of um, autoantibodies that I test for. Um, and then, you know, then we see what shakes out on that. And then we see, we start trying to treat the person's POTS. And if there, if there seems to be MCAS, we try to treat the MCAS. And the people with autoimmune disease, they don't seem to respond very well to those. And that kind of 
I repeat, I always repeat the antibodies three months later. And if they're still positive and they're just not improving and in fact, they're getting worse, that's when I really pursue, um, you know, that, that diagnosis as being kind of the driving force. There is no, everybody, this is a very emerging area. So nobody does things the same, including test, you know, what antibodies you test for. So for example, I really like this panel called the Novel Sjogren's panel. It hasn't been, there, there's only very minimal publications about it, Blink, in the medical um, literature. In fact, it might not even be published formally in the medical literature. Um, there was a poster presented at the auto, International Autoimmunity Meeting some years ago, and um, there was sort of another publication that maybe didn't make it into the medical literature, but it was more in a layman's thing. But I've been ordering that test, which has been commercially available since 2012, ever since I saw this just very first inkling of a link, because we know that Sjogren's is a very important cause of autonomic neuropathy. And, but we also know that the tests the, that are included in the criteria for Sjogren's, the SSA, it used to be SSA and SSB, now it's only SSA, are terribly insensitive, like right. terribly, terribly, terribly insensitive and almost worthless especially in the population with um, the young people who get severely disabling um, dysautonomia. And I like that test, uh, the novel Sjogren's panel. It really seems to want to be um, correlate with people, you know, some of the, some of the clinical manifestations we see in Sjogren's, you know, is an abnormal Schirmer's test, which is we, we have to actually test your tear production in the office. Uh, so dry eyes, dry mouth, gray nodes very often goes with Sjogren's. Uh, often hair loss, significant hair loss, although it's not at all specific for that. We see that in MCAS too, but there tends to be a phenotype that you see. And um, the people who have that phenotype, I often do see the positive uh, novel Sjogren's panel, and it's often negative in other people, but it hasn't been officially studied. It's not in the criteria, you know. So that's where I say, you know, these are not, slam dunk easy diagnoses to make and it's very frustrating i'm sure for patients I, I, we all wish it were much simpler like you know you get an x-ray you got a tumor you get a biopsy you got cancer you know it's not like that right, <laughs> right. which is why i say all the time it's a it, these conditions are just a horrible match for the way healthcare is right now because it's absolutely exactly. not set up for yeah yeah i think what ha i think what needs to happen in the healthcare system is um, they have to recognize there are complex patients and that those patients, providers seeing those patients need more time, period. And right now, it doesn't exist like that. You can spend an hour, you can put a really long note, you can code all whatever you're supposed to code, and they still don't reimburse you for your time. And they'll pay, unfortunately, for a patient to see 10 different specialists for an hour each who don't know anything about these things and don't do anything, but they won't pay one provider who actually knows about this for four hours of time that it takes. And so that's my hope that, that's my call to action if any insurance people are listening, like <laughs> we need to have a definition of complex patients, multi-system mm -hmm. disease that doesn't fall into the current boxes of medicine. And, you know, and so, because right now, unfortunately, as you know, most of, the, of us who do this work have been forced um, to go into a cash only practice. And that's not because we're greedy. It's because we couldn't do the work 
by taking insurance and people, you know, <laughs> there's a certain level of compensation you want to have like somewhere remotely close to what you would make if you did some other kind of work in the field that in order to take on the stress and responsibility of that work period. And, you know, people aren't going to do it if they're not making anywhere, like probably I was making a quarter of what my colleagues would make to work much, much harder. And that's just not sustainable. Um, so it's just, people are doing it because that's the only way they can, providers are doing it. It's the only way that we can do this work and have enough time to spend with patients to really get to the bottom of these complicated patients. You cannot do it in an hour period. You cannot. Right. You can't provide the education. You can't try to shake out which pieces are involved. And so we hope, you know, with time, I, I think that's the only solution is the insurers have to recognize there are complex patients. And I think they will with time. I think they'll recognize, okay, mast cell POTS, EDS, these are complex conditions. Um, but we need more work, more research. Um, there's not any funding in this kind of research. Those of us like spent hours and hours and hours of our time trying to write papers without any kind of compensation or any kind of support. It's very, very difficult. Well, and, and we also need, as, as much as we need insurance companies to recognize it, we need more doctors that can, can work multi-systemically as well. Um, yeah. There's only so many patients you can see. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And there's no training program. So that's right. Where, exactly. There's no, there's no training for... program for multi-system disease. So right. that's where I kind of did my own, I kind of made up my own training program and it has no name, so I can't call it a fellowship, but it's a multi-system autoimmune disease. I spent two years working with various people that I wanted to learn from. And um, I hope a fellowship like that will eventually be developed but there's there's not a lot of people doing the work so and the people doing the work are overburdened because there's too many patients and they're not right and, and most of them are not in academia because academia hasn't supported it because they don't have that box they don't have a department of multi-system disease so you don't fit into their world right so but it'll happen one day it just it's going to take time yeah, the right person, the right person will come along and make it happen. <laughs> yes, I, I hope so, too. I've gotten patients that have been turned down from academic centers with mm -hmm. the academic centers saying we have nothing to offer you. Right. And, and I think it's because, you know, they need to be thinking about their bottom line and they know that they're not going to get compensated like they would for doing a surgery or procedure. And they know that these patients that's not what they need is procedures and surgeries. Like you said, they need time. They need. That's good. Time. At least that they told patients we have nothing to offer them because for the most part they're right. And rather than having the person go and go to this appointment and then get, they do nothing, refer you to that doctor. And that's exhausting, stressful, leads to medical PTSD. So in a way, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. The med, yeah, the academic center's, in my experience, have not embraced these conditions either for patients or for physicians trying to do the work. I agree. And I think that's actually a good message, though, for us to get out through through this podcast, that that doesn't mean that there isn't somebody out there that can help you. Because right, I think right. that's, that's what people get discouraged when, I won't name where the letters have come from, but patients have brought me these letters and they've yeah. shown me, you know, um, but it, that can be very discouraging. Wow. If mm -hmm. that academic center can't help me, then yeah. is there really somebody out there who can? 
Right. Um, so yeah, everybody's ended up for the most part outside of academia, even though it would be best if we could be in academia because we need to do research in these fields and we need to have support to do good research. You have to have support, right? You have to have clinical research coordinators and people who can help you submit the protocol and on it's very complicated and painful subject mm -hmm. as yeah. somebody who's tried to do the research and I, I spent like so much of my time with no support you know right. and it's just exhausting <laughs> and but we still forge ahead and, and try to do it on the side you know and try to write papers that share our experience with treating these patients and hope that they'll have some some impact mm -hmm. and that somebody else who's in a better position to do better research can use it as some kind of framework kind of preliminary information sure sure um, you mentioned small fiber neuropathy uh briefly could you explain a little bit about what that is why people who are bendy should know about it how you work that up and yeah, well, there's two kinds of nerves. There's large fiber nerves that are involved with moving your limbs and telling you where in space your limbs are and touch. And then there are the small fiber nerves, which as their definition says are very small and they are not picked up on the test that is used to test large fiber neuropathy, which is the EMG and nerve conduction testing because the small fiber nerves are so small, their electrical activity is so weak, they're not picked up on that test. So they, you know, until the last few years, there is a small, there's a skin biopsy where you kind of look at the small fiber nerves and you can actually say, oh, they're abnormal. But to, to go back, the small fiber nerves, they are uh, kind of have two functions. The, they're, they're autonomic ones, which control all of these autonomic functions we're talking about. And then they're also control pain, temperature, sense, and itch. So there can be autonomic small, there are autonomic small fiber nerves and there are sensory small fiber nerves. And um, those can be uh, diagnosed by biopsy, uh, skin biopsy. There are, because they, they, these nerves are, they go to every gland, organ and blood vessel in the body and the easiest place to look at that would be the skin. There is a test called the QSART or the QSWET, which is looking at the functional sweating function. In my experience, it's a terribly insensitive test um yeah but so if you have a negative qsart or qsweat in my opinion that does not be even remotely begin to rule out um that you have, might have a small fiber neuropathy or autonomic neuropathy the reason eds patients should know about it is actually it has been published in the literature that almost everybody who has eds has small fiber neuropathy however Having small, there, there are many causes of small fiber neuropathy, including, you know, diabetes is number one. And then there's, you know, HIV, hepatitis C, certain vitamin deficiencies, Lyme disease, autoimmune disease. So it doesn't tell us in any way what the cause is. So the way that I diagnose autoimmune small fiber neuropathy is you have, first of all, a consistent clinical picture of the right kind of symptoms. And then you have an auto pers persistent positivity of one or more autoantibodies that have been associated with it. And you have a skin biopsy that shows you have it. And I only do a skin biopsy personally. I can clinically pretty much tell if someone has small fiber neuropathy because there, you know, there are exam findings that suggest it. But 
if you're trying to get it, if I'm trying to get a trial of IVIG, I like to have an abnormal skin biopsy because then the insurance company people can wrap their head around, okay, there's these autoantibodies, these nerves are damaged, we think they're linked. Um, but otherwise, I don't usually do a skin biopsy. I just clinically suspect it based on the nature of their physical exam. Mm. And, and that's a perfect lead into my next question, which is what criteria do you use for determining if someone is a candidate for IVIG? Um, my, so the, the things I just said, plus they're severely disabled. They can't work and or, and or they can't go to school. Mm -hmm. Because IVIG is extremely expensive. It's burdensome. By that, I mean it requires a lot of time getting an IV or sub-Q infusions. And um, it's not like any, any what we call parenteral therapy, non-oral therapy has higher risks. Although it, I consider the risk relatively low for IVIG, it's, it's, it's quite safe, but there are risks to it. So those are the criteria I use. Okay. And, and can you tell us a little bit about antiphospholipid syndrome? I know this is another area of expertise of yours. Yes. That's one of my goals in life to try to <laughs> increase awareness about this link, because I think it's a really, it will be shown, I believe, with time to be a very important association with small fiber neuropathy. Um, and, you know, and the reason it's important is, well, it's autoimmune and we have treatments for it. Um, but it's also very important because these patients are at risk for blood clots, which can be very severe and blood, blood clots of the arteries and blood clots of the veins. So blood clots of the artery would most commonly be stroke, but it can mean a heart attack and rarely it can mean it can, uh, there can be a clot to, you know, the artery perfusing your leg and you lose your leg, you know, so these are very serious issues and then in the veins artery cl blood clots of the veins most commonly is a blood clot in the leg or arm or the lungs is a pulmonary embolus um those can be fatal or extremely disabling events so um that's why i think this link is so important and um it's just very confusing and complicated because the cri again we come back to the problem with criteria and the criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome were intended to be used for research purposes to capture a uniform population of patients with this very heterogeneous or mixed syndrome that have the blood clots because blood clots are a big deal. Um, and so, but there are no diagnostic criteria. So the research criteria get used for diagnosis and they, and they focus on blood clots. So if there's a doctor who doesn't really know much about this, they quickly re Google it and they see these criteria and they say, oh yeah, there's no link with POTS and antiphospholipids. So the, the, those antibodies you have don't mean anything. And they're, they don't pay any attention to it until or unless you've had a blood clot, which to me is a failure because if you've had a blood clot, that's a big deal, especially if it was a massive stroke or right. it was a fatal pulmonary embolus. So that's why I'm very passionate about this. Um, yeah. And also, you know, another thing in the criteria that's problematic in my opinion is that it has been shown that the higher the antibody levels and the more antibodies you have, the more likely you are to have a blood clot. But I have people who have very minimally elevated antibodies who have had a blood clot 
And so the, the, the criteria actually call for you to have a high titer antibody significantly higher than what the people who designed the assay said a positive is. <laughs> and that, you know, a lot of my patients, some of my worst patients have minimally elevated antibodies, but they are, they are positive and they have clinical features. So the people who have antiphospholipid syndrome, or we don't call it syndrome, unfortunately, unless you have a blood clot. So we have to just say there is an ICD-10 code for antiphospholipid antibody positive. So you don't really have anything unless you've had a blood clot, but you just have antiphospholipid antibody positive. But there's a very specific phenotype um, of the people who uh, have antiphospholipid syndrome or antiphospholipid antibody positive. And that is, um, first of all, like the clues that might suggest you might be at risk for this would be, first of all, frequent migraine, often refractory, often with aura, like a visual kind of changes that come on before the migraine. Um, Raynaud's memory loss, more than just brain fog, but like, and, and that can be hard to tease out because everybody with POTS has brain fog, right? Um, but it, it, it's often a bigger complaint in people with antiphospholipid, many people in their 20s or 30s, they're worried they have dementia, they're worried they have Alzheimer's, they're blank spells and they're thinking where, you know, they can't remember the name of their best friend from 30 years or, you know, just, just more prominent memory loss. And then there's um, a skin finding called libido reticularis, which is like a lacy pattern of the skin. And you can Google libido reticularis. And if you Google anything, you get the worst, you know, possible pictures, but it's usually not as bad as the pictures that you'll see on the, most of the pictures you see on the internet. But it's, it's most often present kind of on the, this part, the inner part of the arm and around the knees or the thighs. And it, it often comes out, the most common time people might notice it is when they get out of the shower. So they're going from uh, hot to cold. Or if they're just in the cold, it, it tends to come out or it tends to be more prominent. For some people, it's there all the time, but other people, it sort of is more fleeting. And that's a really important clinical clue that somebody might you know, that somebody should, that, that diagnosis should be um, considered. Uh, obviously, if someone's had a blood clot you, and they have POTS, you better start thinking about <laughs> antiphospholipid. And then the other one is um, pregnancy complications. So recurrent miscarriage, especially late miscarriage, you know, after 10 weeks, stillbirth, preeclampsia, eclampsia, um, you know, seizures we see in patients with antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, so those are, uh, you know, then there's some other more subtle ones like thickening of the heart valves. I always look very carefully at the echoes of my, all of my patients with POTS. I'm looking to see if the cardiologist said their aortic or mitral valve are thickened because they almost never put that in the impression. I don't know why, because it is abnormal. And uh, oh, the other thing is white matter change on brain MRI. That's another hmm. thing. A lot of neurologists say, oh, that's nothing. It's just due to your migraines. But, you know, it's another thing that I, I think if a study were formally done, the people with migraine who actually have white matter change are probably much more likely to have antiphospholipid antibodies. So that's sort of the clinical phenotype. Um, it's almost always women, but I have a few men and they often have a more prominent, they don't often fit that phenotype quite as well 
but they are more likely to, to have memory loss and less likely to have migraine. But that, that just, there aren't enough patients to really kind of characterize it, but it's, it's much more very female predominant, like lupus and Sjogren's. Interesting. But there are men who get it. And, and I saw in one of your papers that there was, well, was even a relationship between antiphospholipid um, antibody syndrome and CRPS or complex mm -hmm. regional pain yeah. syndrome and, and EDS, which, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, we saw that. The people, usually the people who have, I mean, CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, is another way in which this autonomic neuropathy can look clinically. So it's very complicated. Some people have POTS. Some people have severe gastroparesis or other GI dysmotility. Some people have this complex regional pain syndrome. Um, and some people have all of them. So it can have um, different, it, it can look differently in different, different patients. So yeah, the other thing that all of the patients that I have had with complex regional pain syndrome, which is a very severe pain syndrome that develops most commonly after like a fracture or some other injury to an extremity, um, they have all had either MCAS and or antiphospholipid syndrome. And you can kind of tell which one, I, I can almost always tell which one they're going to have because the APS people, you know, they got the migraines, they got the Raynaud's, they got the white matter change. And the mast cell people, they got the hives, they got, you know, abdominal pain, they got diarrhea, they, you know, they, you can tell. But they can have both too. But I've never had a patient with CRPS who didn't have one or one or the other of those. But this is also a super emerging concept too that they're you know even beginning to think about what might be the cause of crps we're, we're just happy if somebody's actually gotten the diagnosis because that is very difficult for people to get diagnosed with that and crps is uh, the most painful condition there is period so the montreal pain well you can probably comment uh dr bluestein as an anesthesiology pain specialist but so correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a Montreal pain scale that goes up to 55, right? So instead of going from zero to 10, they were trying to characterize um, people who are at a 10 and make kind of spread them out and see who is worse. And the very most painful condition is CRPS, even more painful than uh, childbirth without anesthesia or amputation without anesthesia. So it's extremely painful and these patients get just written off and told they're crazy. It's very mm. tragic. Yeah, it, is. It, it, it definitely is. Yeah, um, among the, the many painful conditions of which our uh, EDS population is at higher risk for, you know, also yeah. like uh, adhesive arachnoiditis, which is another, you know, super painful condition. It's, it's um, especially important to recognize these things since there are so many other, you know, comorbid conditions that, we, we can at least, you know, try to be doing something about, so. Right. Yeah, so, there is treatment yeah. for CRPS. I mean, people who get into physical therapy right away, and then if there is MCAS or there is an autoimmune cause, the, the patients who have, my patients who've had antiphospholipid syndrome, they respond to IVIG. Um, but the biggest thing is to get the pain under controlled with, you know, things like gabapentin and getting into therapy and trying to avoid opiates if possible. 
and then looking for an underlying cause. And the clinical clues there is just that A, that you had a, you had a recent fracture and their pain is just way out of proportion um, to what they're expecting you to have. It's getting worse, it's not getting better. And then there are these autonomic findings because it is a disorder of these autonomic nerves or small fiber nerves. So there's temperature change on the affected limb. There can be color change on the affected limb. Um, there can be swelling of the affected limb because the autonomic nerves actually go to the tiny blood vessels and when they're dysregulated, there can be edema or swelling. Mm. Um, and there can be change in the growth of um, hair and nails, which is also another thing the autonomic nervous system regulates. And there can be, probably there can be itch too, because although I guess I haven't, I guess I haven't seen that. I take that back. But small fiber neuropathy patients can show up with itch. Yeah, I've definitely seen the itch, not so much, you know, with the CRPS. CRP, yes, yeah, yeah the, pain, the pain predominates. They might have the itch, but it would just be drowned <laughs> out by the pain. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And, um, and you studied uh, 22 patients in your 2017 paper, Autonomic Neuropathy in its Many Guises as the Initial Manifestation of Antiphospholipid Syndrome. And I found this really fascinating reading about this paper because you talked about a subset of people with joint hypermobility that actually had a lower incidence of arterial thrombosis, but a higher incidence of small fiber sensory neuropathy. And, um, and you also talked about like the uh, high percentage of um, autoimmune disease, most commonly thyroiditis. And um, do you have any thoughts about that, about that paper in particular? Well, and not really, because there weren't really enough patients. That was just you know, it wasn't a statistical, statistically significant thing, but, and it's also very confusing in EDS because, and when I say, when you say the sensory, I actually, all of my patients in that paper had the skin biopsy that was analyzed both for the autonomic nerves, which is quantitated as the, what's called the sweat gland nerve fiber density. And they had what's called the sensory nerves, which are quantitated by the epidermal nerve fiber density they were, the people without EDS were more likely just to have the autonomic rather than the autonomic and the sensory. But, um, so I don't know what that means. Um, and like I said, there weren't enough patients, but as I already said before, we don't know why almost every patient with EDS, if you do a skin biopsy on them, they have small fiber neuropathy. Wow. We don't know why that is. I think if you ask me why, like my hypothesis is, there's a super strong link with mast cell and I, and the mast cells line up along these, these autonomic small fiber nerves and they interact intimately anatomically and functionally. And I think if the mast cells are overactive and they're dumping these toxic mediators on those nerves, that they're not going to look normal or act normal. Um, they're not going to look normal on the skin biopsy and they're not going to act normal in that. In other words, that the patient's going to have, you know, they eat something with red dye and they get just burning pain all over their body. You know, you know, there's a link with mast cells and small fiber neuropathy if you're in the trenches seeing these patients, but right. hasn't been published yet. I hope somebody is publishing it right now as I speak, because I know it is a cause of small fiber neuropathy. And every, since everybody seems to have small fiber neuropathy and everybody with EDS seems to have mast cell, I think that's the reason, but then there are the people who, who get the autoimmunity and, I, you know, do the skin biopsy to try to prove my case that I think it's autoimmune, um, as I mentioned, to get a trial of IVIG, but I can pretty much know that the person's going to have it, even if it wasn't autoimmune, because it doesn't, 
the presence of it doesn't improve, doesn't tell us the cause. Um, so it's very complicated and it, and that's where it gets back again to, you can't just look at, you have to look at the whole person's whole clinical picture. You can't just look at the biopsy and the antibodies. You have to look at their whole clinical picture, which includes the fact that they are not responding to treatment for POTS like salt and fluids and exercise and the pharmacologic medications we have that help POTS. They're not responding to the mast cell therapy and they're just getting worse and worse. And they, you know, they have the autoantibodies and they have a clinical, you know, like say they, say they have antiphospholipid antibodies, but they have lividal reticularis and they have Raynaud's and they have this white matter change and they have valvular thickening. Then you're like, okay, they should get a trial of IVIG because I think this is autoimmune. Hmm. So it becomes, it, it, it's very complicated. You really have to spend a lot of time going through all of these pieces and you have to, it also takes time when, when somebody, if I see somebody in the beginning, I'm worried about an autoimmune cause, they have a family history of autoimmunity and I run these antibodies and they have antibodies, I don't just pull out IVIG tomorrow. I only save it for the people who aren't responding to the other things because a lot of people do respond to the other things, even if they have the autoantibodies. Sure, and what other things do you treat antiphospholipid syndrome with? Oh yeah, good question. Um, I think of antiphospholipid syndrome as having two components. Okay, there's the sticky blood piece, which is the layman's term for antiphospholipid syndrome, sticky blood. And then there's the immune, the autoimmune piece. So one of the areas, my areas of interest, and I just submitted a paper about this, uh, 78 patients with antiphospholipid antibodies and migraine, severe migraine, who I gave a trial of antithrombotic therapy for, which would include either medications that target the platelets like aspirin or Plavix, or in some people, anticoagulation. And this is something, this is a phenomenon that's been described by Dr. Hughes in the early days that he noted when he treated patients with antiphospholipid syndrome who had a blood clot with blood thinners, so many patients would say, oh, my headaches I've had every day for 10 years have gone away and my thinking, I can think again, I couldn't think at all. And so he proposed many years ago a trial of heparin, which is a blood thinner in patients who had severe migraine, who hadn't had a blood clot, but had the antibodies and, and showed in this very short publication, uh, it was literally like a half a page, probably wouldn't have gotten published today, um, that mo most or all of them, their headaches improved. So, but that is a phenomenon that hasn't taken off in the broader medical community, but it's been an interest of mine. And, it's another feature of, of that might make you suspect APS is if someone has migraine and they respond to antithrombotic therapy. So that is a, um, I hope this publication will increase awareness about this very important phenomenon because there are people who've had debilitating migraines every day and you put them on Plavix and they go away completely. And um, memory loss. I have actually this incredible case of this older guy who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And oh, another feature of antiphospholipid is low platelets. Just can be just mild low platelets, and also low lowish white count. This guy was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and his doctor had APS, and she noticed his platelet count was low, and so she tested him. And he had really high antibodies, and so on. Um, uh, and I, he required antiplatelet and anticoagulation. He was like a new person. He got off his Aricept for his Alzheimer's that he didn't have, and his functional ability improved dramatically. So this is like a really important piece of it that I target 
that is again another emerging area, but it's a it's a simple trial. The people who respond, it's dramatic. Um, so that's one piece. And I wonder, I personally wonder, I think, I, I wish somebody would study this. Um, we think that people, by the way, who respond that we think it's working because there's sludging of the blood. Um, it's sticky. It's like running old oil through your car. Your car doesn't work quite right. And the brain is really dependent upon proper oxygenation and blood flow. Um, I think that I wonder if, you know, these small fiber nerves are so tiny, they're perfused by blood vessels that are smaller in diameter, I've been told, than the actual diameter of a red cell. And that, that would be a prime location where sludging can occur, right? So I just, I think, you know, I've seen teenagers where if we treat them who, and they have headaches, and so we treat them with aspirin or Plavix, it makes their headaches go away. And I treat them with the other drug that I often use is Plaquenil, which I'll come back to, which is an immune modulator. We get them on Plaquenil and vitamin D and Plavix or aspirin. They can go from being very severely, and we treat their pots with salt and fluids or whatever. They can go from being severely disabled to basically feeling normal most of the time, and they stay that way. Whereas if we catch them later, they, that's not the outcome. So there's this, there's the sticky blood side, and then there's the autoimmune side. I really like the drug Plaquenil, uh, hydroxychloroquine. It's Dr. Trump's drug that he, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's not as well studied in antiphospholipid syndrome, and some people don't use it, but I love it. I, I've seen it really stabilize my patients anecdotally. It hasn't been, again, well studied. It has been studied in a number of studies in pregnancy, Patients with antiphospholipid antibodies and pregnancy it dramatically improves outcomes, but it's been best studied in lupus where it improves, makes people live longer, dramatically improves flares. And, and there's significant overlap between lupus and antiphospholipid syndrome. A quarter of patients with lupus have antiphospholipid antibodies or antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, it also, it, it interferes with the way the antiphospholipid antibodies kind of carry out their evil humor. It has, it reduces the risk of blood clots and lupus has been studied in lupus. I, I wonder if those are the people that have antiphospholipid antibodies, but so I use that drug and I recommend that drug in all of my patients who have persistent antiphospholipid antibodies and a clinical picture that fits with it. Um, and 80% of patients notice improved symptoms, most commonly fatigue, joint pain, and or neuropathic pain, like sharp shooting pains or tingling or those kinds of symptoms. Um, I recommend it even if there is no symptomatic improvement, because I feel like it's doing important things in the background and it doesn't suppress the immune system. And overall, it's an extremely safe drug, despite, you know, the kind of bad rap that people were trying to give it and, you know, <laughs> to try to get people, I think, not to use it for COVID. Um, so that would be sort of, if I find often it's teenagers who have these antibodies, um, they have POTS, they have clinical features of antiphospholipid syndrome, it's this vitamin D, Plaquenil, and if they have headaches responsive to aspirin or Plavix, that cocktail seems to be magical. Wow. So not everybody, and, and that can happen in adults too, if they're diagnosed earlier. It's just people, some people, um, the whole thing gets kicked off very aggressively by some trigger. 
and then there is just that you know they need IBIG. Oh. But those are sort of the pieces that are different in people who don't have the antibodies. And the other thing is just the awareness and recognition that if you have those antibodies, no matter how low they are, in my opinion, you are at risk for blood clot. And if you have symptoms of a blood clot, you better go get checked out sooner rather than later. And also if you have a surgery, you know, we, we recommend it's, it's kind of, um, evidence-based recommendation that's not widely recognized in the medical community that if you have antiphospholipid antibodies, even if you haven't had a blood clot and you have a surgery, which is any surgery increases the clotting risk for a period of time proportionate to the nature of the surgery. So we recommend using, you know, anticoagulation for some period of time after a surgery. It might just be a few days, it might be a few weeks, depending, like I said, orthopedic surgeries are, are very high risk. And, and the same is true with pregnancy, because that also is a very pro-thrombotic or high clotting risk um, state in the postpartum period. So somebody with antiphospholipid antibodies should be treated with anticoagulation after they deliver for the fourth trimester. Um, so I think um, the presence of the antibodies, even if you don't have the syndrome, are they're an important risk factor for clots that can should can and should affect how we take care of that person. Also, along the same lines, if it's a woman and they have those antibodies and they're going to get pregnant, they need to be followed by high risk OB. Mm. The pregnancy needs to be monitored much more carefully. They should take aspirin. I believe they should take Plaquenil. It significantly reduces um, pregnancy complications. And um, I have I've had patients who have had severely terrible pregnancy outcomes. They didn't know they had antiphospholipid antibodies, and then we find out they have it, and then we treat them with the things I'm talking about, Plaquenil, vitamin D, aspirin, and, and they do great, and they get monitored closely. The, the fetus is monitored regularly, et cetera, and usually they do very well. So if we know about it, people do much better than if we don't know about it until they have a bad event. Hmm. And to the healthcare system and we were talking about earlier, to me, this as an anesthesiologist, you know, that's one of the definite things that, that you always consider is what type of surgery is it? And then there's different protocols for different, um, you know, yeah. to prevent the blood clots. But if you can further um, delineate who is at higher risk, as opposed to just right now, we treat most everybody the same, you know, right. so yeah. if, we, if we knew in advance, you know, these people have this antibody, they're at higher risk. Um, you know, it, I think that's, that's really good, really, really good information. That, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and what dose of aspirin are you uh, usually using? Um, yeah, usually most people respond to 81, but I have a few people who don't respond to 81 and respond to 325. But Plavix, one of the things that I showed in the paper that I recently submitted is that Plavix is much more effective than aspirin. Mm. And I don't know why that is. Um, I like, I personally think Plavix is safer than aspirin. I, I worked as a hospitalist for many years, so I use Plavix every day, but a lot of physicians are not familiar with it. For some reason, they think it's a scary drug, but basically Plavix and aspirin both inhibit platelets or make platelets less sticky for the life of the platelet, irreversibly for the life of the platelet, which is 10 days. So they both do that exact same endpoint by a slightly different mechanism. 
but aspirin at the same time is irritating to the GI tract. Mm -hmm. And so that combination can increase the risk of GI bleeding and, and trouble there, whereas Plavix doesn't do that. So that's why I consider it safer. It doesn't have any GI side effects or uh, doesn't cause GI inflammation. So I love Plavix. It's very well tolerated. The dose is 75 milligrams a day, but it does require a prescription. And for whatever mm -hmm. reason, it just works significantly better than aspirin. The p-value was like less than 0 0.00001 or something like that. It was just much more effective. But um, there is the, you know, the problem of some, some doctors think it's a scary drug and it requires a prescription. Right. And, and I'm recalling also when I um, interviewed uh, one of our mastermind colleagues and also one of our co-authors in the book, um, the d book Disjointed, uh, Paldeep Atwal, I interviewed him and we were talking about Plavix. Oh, really? And, yeah. Yeah. And, and the genetic, I don't know exactly what it is, but there's some genetic marker that um, a certain percentage of the population, which was not an insignificant percentage of the population, would not be sensitive to it. So the interesting thing is, yeah. I wonder if some of those people that don't respond to it, it's not because it's not really the right you know, yeah. approach, but it's genetic, some genetic. Difference. Yeah, that has to do with the metabolism. And there, there is a test and I often, I test, sometimes I test for it. I mean, the cardio, it hasn't been found in the cardiovascular literature that I'm aware of to be worth doing. They don't do it as a matter of routine, but um, I usually, that is a reason. And then there's also aspirin resistance. Like that's mm. something now that shows up on 23andMe, you have aspirin resistance. Okay. Mm. So that's why if one if a person fails one, I usually switch them to the other and vice versa. Okay. Because people respond, that was another thing we showed in this paper is everybody's different in the way they respond. Which cocktail, which drug or drugs works for one person, it's different from person to person. And so it's very individualized and symptom driven rather than a one size fits all approach. And it's a simple, you know, two week trial you know, it's usually dramatic, either, yup, just takes it away or it doesn't do anything. And it's like any drug trial, we stop it if there's no benefit. And I think it's telling us in the patients who have headaches every day for 10 years, who take Plavix and their Plavix and their headaches go away, that it's, it's, you know, kind of their own internal gauge that their blood stickiness is now right. Because we don't have a test for that. We don't have a test for overall blood stickiness. But the rate of bleeding we found in the study was extremely low. And I think it's because of that phenomenon. Like it's normalizing, you know, it's, it's a readout that it's normal, that their, that their level of blood stickiness, so to speak, is where it should be. Um, and if, you know, and there was no bleeding in any of the 78 patients during the, the trial, the two-week trial two to four week trial. It depends upon the duration of the trial, of course, depends upon the frequency of the symptoms. So if somebody has migraine every day, a two week trial, you should, you should be very clear either this works or it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. So, so um, we are going to be talking to Dr. Schofield um, again in part, in part two of this conversation, um, which uh, we're going to be super excited for you to, to hear. In the meantime, Dr. Schofield, was there anything else that you want to share 
for this, this part is more kind of the provider part and um, the more academic part, if you will. Do you have a call to action for providers or um, any other, you know, specialists taking care of, of this population? And then could you also let people know where they can find you? Um, I have my own practice called Center for Multisystem Disease in Denver, Colorado, and you can Google it and you can find out how to reach me there. Um, yeah, I mean, my that uh, we just talked about my most passionate topic, which is the link between antiphospholipid syndrome and POTS, and also the link with refractory migraine. And so the call to action to providers is to A, think about it, and be to start to recognize this clinical phenotype, which is more than just pregnancy complication and thrombosis. It's does do you, are you seeing a patient? Do they have livido reticularis? Take a look at their skin. Do they have ray nodes? Do they have white matter change? Um, stress fractures, recurrent stress fractures, we see in patients because they're not getting enough blood flow to the bone, and if they run, they get stress fractures. Um, mild low platelet count, mild low white count in the three to four range, thickening of valves in the body of the echo report. If you see this kind of, it, not everybody has all of those things, but many of the patients have three or four, oh, and memory loss, is, if they're complaining, my memory, I'm worried I have Alzheimer's. Those are, those are um, that's the clinical phenotype when, think about it, because I consider it a failure if somebody meets the criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome because most of the people have clues that they could have been diagnosed before they had that serious outcome. Well, well, that's great information and thank you so much for, for chatting with us today. And um, we're gonna be looking forward to part two. Yes, thank you. <laughs> if you have enjoyed this program, please like, share, subscribe, and leave a review. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Please see your own medical team prior to making any changes to your health care. Bendy Body's original music is by Andrew Savino and sound editing is by Rhett Gill. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time on Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD.